There's this theory that these scientists came up with after studying tribes in India and Africa, South America. The smaller tribes didn't have any government, didn't need any. They could sit down and talk out their problems, decide where to plant crops to hunt. It was just a big family, really. But when the number of people got up around 500, if there wasn't any government, the strongest people would take advantage of the weakest. Every time, without fail, they would enslave, rape, steal, enrich their lives at the expense of other people's lives. Government's men's way of trying to control our behavior, but it can't be controlled. That's what we are. Sooner or later, the kind of people that would enrich themselves at your expense will use the government to do it. And mark my words, one day they'll create laws to control what we say, how we think. They'll outlaw our right to disagree if we let them. Preach it, Han Solo. From the show, 1923. So true. And as Gordon White said, tyranny requires centralization to thrive, to spread its arconic fungi infection. Disagreeing is now an act of war in this culture, if you hadn't noticed. Above all, no redeeming, reforming, or even coexisting with our government exists. Yaldabaoth has made it entirely in his ghoulish image. Don't you see this? It's too late. The Empire's supreme, and until you accept this, get over that safety chimera and realize part of you is a program foot soldier in the war against Sophia, things will only get frog in the boiling water worse. All fellow members of the Roman Senate, Hear me, shall we continue to build palace after palace for the rich? Or shall we aspire to a more noble purpose and build decent housing for the poor? How does the Senate vote? Fuck the poor! Good. It's interesting, too, that Western-themed shows are very popular these days. Like 1923, 1883, Yellowstone, and Tulsa King. There are no coincidences. Beyond any Taylor Sheridan conspiracies, to me it means it's part of that Gnostic awakening. After all, the Wild West, as Jason Horsley once wrote, is the best representation of the desert of the real. And quoting Gordon again, Gnosticism is a desert song. When I looked out over this land, I only saw the freedom it promised. I knew nothing of the horror that hides in freedom's shadow. We are talking about a land of mirages and false gold. In the frontier land, it seems the animals, the terrain, and even the climate is eternally trying to kill us. Not just kill us, but drive us insane. As the saying goes, Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. This land fashioned native empires of deranged scalping and human sacrifice. 
turn colonists and pioneers into unhinged prophets of capitalism. What's more, this is a harsh land where the trickster coyote rules, along with the Dust Bowl demons and the curse of ancient giants. You know what you think about it? Same God made you and me also made a rattlesnake. That just don't make no sense. On the other hand, abundant sparks of magic and liberation exist behind dusty illusions. As does the call of lost goddesses and enchanted portals in the shape of sunsets. There is no heaven to go to, because we're in it already. We're in hell too. They coexist right beside each other. And God is the land. The trickster and the lost goddess will lead the way to your apotheosis, but can also lead you astray into the nihilistic madness of solely accepting that most of what you are is just a manufactured meat sack dinner for the various archons. And not accepting the great reminder, there is no safety in freedom. There was never any safety to begin with, nor independence, just those liberating portals and the call of the coyote and the lost goddess. As Jorge Luis Borges wrote in his story about the Gnostic facilities, we are a careless or criminal blunder, the fruit of engagement of the flawed deity and crude material, the world presented as a primarily pernicious creation, an oblique and perverted reflection of the divine celestial decrees. Creation as a play of chance, like on a plane at the tour of magnificent sunset. The skies are solemn and burning and the earth is wretched. Freedom. To most, it is an idea. An abstract thought that pertains to control. That's not freedom. That's independence. Freedom is riding wild over untamed land with no notion any moment exists beyond the one you are living. In that Gnostic awakening, we now see the hologram falter and know that in 2023, it's still the desert of the real, that the Wild West is all around. It's like that greatest of modern gospels, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, a terra damnata that we must tame with our imagination, meaning and innate magic. Or we'll go bananas before the gods destroy us. Sophia, ask yourself, what god made a world like this one? A real shitty god. The same one that created this world. So welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to Aeon Bite. Welcome, you pioneers of the wondrous, of the forgotten, of Dreamtime itself. My name is Miguel Connor, your Pompidus of Gnosis, and I am once again honored to have your wisdom and power keeping me company in this Terra Damnata. If we have souls, they are made of the love we share. Undimmed by time, unbound by death. We deal with the Wild West in this eternal now and show how it extends beyond America. 
beyond the material world. As above, so below, Hermes Trismegisto said, speaking through Apollonius of Tyana. The mirages and false gold extend into the heavens, and the demiurge reflects his government in the digital domains of today. Moreover, as you'll see, the desert song of the Gnostics has existed in the sands of ancient Egypt and Israel, in the twisted desires of medieval treasure hunters and corrupt alchemists. And more, so much more, Yaldibaldi. But we don't care anymore about safety, just freedom. Freedom in running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. As Dr. King said, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. For all of this, we are joined by Tom Montauk, who will discuss his excellent Red Pill Suppository book, Gnosis, Alchemy, Grail, Ark, and the Demiurge. Gird your loins and plug your vag canals for one of the most enlightening yet startling interviews on Aeon Bite. Tom is a cowboy of pure gnosis. What truth is that? That there isn't one world, but many, and that we live in the wrong one. This will help them find the door. For more perspective on this Terra Damnata, this cosmic wild west and frontier land, let us end with a passage from past guest Alexander Mostrovoy from his also excellent book, Gnosticism Through the Prism of the Third Millennium. Will our clits explode? Gnosticism endued its followers not with faith but with knowledge. Gnosis liberated the human being from the darkness of the material world. Liberation, according to Valentinus, is knowledge. What liberates is the knowledge of who we were, what we became, where we were, whereinto we have been thrown, whereto we speed, wherefrom we are redeemed, what birth is, and what rebirth is. Who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? Who, who am I? Who are you? What other questions are there? What other questions are there, really? If you, you want to understand the universe, embrace the universe. The, the door to the universe is you. The human being is cast into this world, dusky, onerous, cold, crude, and cruel, at times maddeningly perverse. Weak and defenseless, he is just a life bridge in the endless chain of generations. Against his own will, he lives at times all his life, as if in raving delirium, hopelessness and feverish quest for mirages. His existence is pointless and death is agonizing. His mind is haunted by obsession, loneliness and sorrow, and his flesh by sickness, miseries and woes. He is unaware of what is happening to him. Our existence is like a scary dream, and a bat, the symbol of blindness, darkness, and nightmares, is the embodiment of it. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place, and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. But the world of dust is finite, and, generally, incidental. Like man himself, 
which means it is inconsequential and secondary. And only spirit's particle encumbered in a man is primary, and it is subject to pleroma. Gnostics did not comfort with the presence of an omnipresent, all-seeing, merciful, and caring supreme being, but claimed that the Creator was absolutely indifferent to the suffering of the creatures made by Him. His lips are sealed, and His glance is cold and blind like the world He created. And yet the human being is above His tiny cage of flesh, and above the cosmic Creator, as he carries in himself the understanding of a different, true and perfect world. Our God has no rules, only ceremonies to know him better, or no rules. Valentinus maintained that, through knowledge, then, is saved the inner spiritual man, so that to us suffices the knowledge of universal being. This is the true salvation. Gnosis makes an individual self-sufficient, allowing to exist where life is empty, pointless, and finite. There's an old Zen koan. It goes like this. Everyone has two lives, and the second life begins the moment you realize that all along, you only had one. As the Gospel of Truth states, If a person has the Gnosis, he is a being from on high. If he is called, he hears, replies, and turns towards him who calls him, in order to reascend to him. Joy to the man who has rediscovered himself and awakened. This particular vision, free from myths and exaltation of separate teachings, allows to speak about the uniqueness of the Gnostic ideal, irrespective of epoch, culture, and circumstances. Looking back, there were two journeys. One was filled with danger and death and despair. The other, adventure and wonder. I was on the latter, and I loved it. I didn't know enough to know they would collide. I didn't know enough to know how cruel and uncaring this world could be. The world doesn't care if you die. They won't listen to your screams. If you bleed on the ground, the ground will drink it. It doesn't care that you're cut. I told myself, when I meet God, it will be the first thing I ask him. Why make a world of such wonder and fill it with monsters? Why make flowers and then snakes to hide beneath them? What purpose does the tornado serve? Then it hit me. He didn't make it for us. This is the Aeon Bite interview. And with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Tom Montauk to discuss a book I really enjoyed. And that is Gnosis, Alchemy, Grail, Ark, and the Demiurge. Tom, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure is all ours, and it is a pleasure to have the Moondog Vance here. Vance, how are you doing? Very good. Just putting aside my Archon of the Covenant here. Close that up and lock it and uh, get ready for a good talk. There you go. 
there you go this is wonderful stuff and yeah your book definitely uh again i really enjoyed it and you hit all the right notes and you gave us a fascinating and often disturbing journey through time and space and reality and everything else to encounter our mutual friend yaldabaoth but uh, before we get into the book, Tom, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in these high weirdness topics? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been a paranormal experiencer all my life. I mean, even even as a child, I had uh, so many different ghost encounters and uh, what seemed to be possibly even extraterrestrial uh, type encounters. So from an early age, uh, my father, he was a uh, my father was German. I was born in Germany and he was an electrical engineer. And so his mind was very science oriented, uh, which allowed him to have many conversations with me about the universe, science. I mean, I even remember being six years old and discussing relativity with him and physics, electrical engineering, everything like that. Uh, and so I was very curious. I was always taking apart uh, different devices, trying to figure out how they worked. And so uh, when I had these paranormal experiences, I was confronted with this uh, this unsolvable mystery of of what the heck is going on with reality. You know, Absolutely. I was trying to figure things out, and here was a mystery that could not be figured out by my kid mind. And so that put into my subconscious this deep drive to try to put everything together, really, really try to figure something out that made sense to me, that had no holes, that was self consistent. You know, that explained so many different things. And so uh, when I was twelve or thirteen. I got a library card and I read all the spirituality, metaphysics, physics, uh, you know, all, all the related books on those topics. Uh, and my journey just continued from there. So uh, right around 2002, uh, 2003, that's when I was contacted by someone who was, I think, I think he, he must have been a Rosicrucian, like a real life, like a real Rosicrucian, not the card carrying uh, AMORC <laughs> Rosicrucian, but like the real deal. And um the things that we were only in touch for a brief time, but some of the things that he told me, I later on dug into it. And that led me to the book called Hamlet's Mill, which is a, a fascinating book about ancient Indo-European mythology and how it seems to encode the precession of the equinoxes, the, uh, the wobbling of the Earth's axis over a 26,000 year cycle. Well, that's what the authors of the book thought it was about. But um, during my investigations into alchemy, Rosicrucianism, uh, Gnosticism, uh, the alien abduction phenomenon, it, it all started spiraling out from there. And it made me realize, oh, wait a minute, this Hamlet's Mill book wasn't just about the procession of the equinoxes, but about something far greater having to do with the corruption of our very timeline, with um, the use of very powerful extraterrestrial technologies to alter reality at a quantum level. And so I started really looking into this and trying to figure out like, what is it that all these different ancient myths and even modern uh, phenomena like, you know, ufology and uh, Freudian phenomena that John Keel was into, what would what, what all these point towards? And so that's what ultimately gave birth to this Gnosis book. Wonderful. Yes. John Keel also uh, definitely influences me big time, informs my Gnostic worldview. I think he was, well, obviously onto something. And for the audience, uh, Tom's uh, website, which of course we'll have on the show notes, is uh, great, but it, and it's broad. So many wonderful topics just beyond Gnosticism, alchemy. So you could lose yourself in your website. But let's go to your book. Um, 
As you write, and I am quoting here, my aim in writing this book was to explore an authentic Gnostic signal in the most diverse sources using the biggest bucket possible. So that's what you were aiming, right? To get a comprehensive uh, theory, full view of what's going on with, as you say, and I agree, this uh, less than real reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my research into the idea of a fake reality, like a matrix reality, that um, that originally happened back in 2001 when I was in college. Uh, I went to college for physics and electrical engineering. And um, and I started having many weird synchronicities back then, uh, things that indicated to me that that reality was responsive to consciousness. Um, actually, I mean, in fact, in the, in the dorm room, <laughs> it became a joke between me and my, my roommate. Every single day, I would have so many synchronicities, and he would too. <laughs> that it just became a normal part of life, right? right? And and so I had to had to reconcile that with my interest in physics, um, and everything else, and I, and I was trying to put it all together. So that kind of laid the the groundwork. And then later on, when I started getting into uh, ancient mythology, and uh, Rosicrucianism, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, quantum physics, Freudian and Jungian psychology, it, it all started to to coalesce. And uh, yeah, and so here we are. Here we are. Yes. Uh, I don't think, yeah, science and mysticism should be working together. And your your dad was always cool with your uh, strange metaphysics? Interestingly, he was into parapsychology. Oh, um, well, there you but, go. Yeah, yeah. And my mom, she was from Singapore, so she grew up in a uh, Asian culture. And over there, you know, the idea of ghosts, uh, ancestors, things like that, they it's just common knowledge there. I mean, my, gra- my grandma in uh, Singapore, she was a, a shaman. And she could converse with the spirits and heal people. And so she had psychic abilities. And my mom did too. Um, so between that paranormal side and my dad's engineering and a little bit of uh, parapsychology side, that did influence me as a child. So it, it kind of laid the, the foundation for that too. Yeah, it, it's in the family. And do you get people, obviously, your experiences parallel mine and certainly Vance's. Do you get people asking you, man, I want a mystic... Uh, I want a mystic experience. I want to see behind the veil. Do you offer them advice or do you tell them, well, you're either born with it or not? I think, uh, you know, there are people out there who haven't had a single paranormal experience that they can, that they can count. Right. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame them because the fact of the matter is we are here for different reasons. You know, each of us is here for our own reason. And some people need that paranormal learning track and other people don't. Um, but, you know, I, I guess in that sense, it's commendable when someone who doesn't have the experience is interested in it, because then they're not even being shaped by their environment. You know, they're doing it purely out of their own free will and interest. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I get sometimes and I was that way. People want a mystic experience, but at the core, they want it because they're afraid of death. They want to know that there's something out there like Woody Allen and Hannah and her sisters and I think you that's not the right way to go. You have to first be a deal with your fear of death, which influences all your fears. And that opens channels of communication to a wonderful world out there. What do you think of that? Yes, yes. And I think if people, I think the easiest and the most common experience anyone can have is a synchronicity, because that doesn't require being out of body. It doesn't require, you know, seeing ghosts or demons (laughs) or aliens or anything scary. It's just, you know, when these these meaningful coincidences pile up over time, at some point you have to realize, well, wait a minute, this this can't just be selection <laughs> bias or confirmation bias. Uh, you know, that this can't be that. It has to be something. And then when you really start thinking about, well, okay, well, what are the implications of this? 
then it just blows up and you know it's it, you really go down the rabbit hole after that point yeah agreed uh, as i said synchronicity is just the just the divine talking to you and as i tell people well, watch out because you might get what you want but a mystic experience or god talking to you can pretty much turn your life upside down right everything you knew will be destroyed <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i mean people people need they need personal experience to go off of and mm. which which makes sense because if you don't go off a of personal experience then all you have left is logic and faith in authority and faith in authority as you know is very dangerous it's very dangerous because no one in authority is perfect and uh typically they have agendas right so you put you put too much faith into that and you're you're going to be misled agreed agreed well let's talk about uh the book itself uh Let's start with some broader themes and some of these characters. Uh, what is the matrix control system, Tom? Okay, so the way that I define the matrix control system is that it is the, invis the invisible system of control that aims to keep us spiritually asleep. So it's, um, you know, we, we call it the matrix control system. And the language for that, as you know, was, uh, was provided for by the matrix movies. So that was back in 98, 99. Actually, there was a spate of movies back then. You had The Truman Show, Dark City, The Matrix. Um, but these came after the fact because the truth of the matter is that the Gnostics were onto this thousands of years ago, you know, in the, in the early early uh, centuries of the first millennium. Um, and so the Matrix control system, it's a system of different, uh, what's well, the different things? Like at the, at the very top, right? At the very top, um, even the Gnostics were talking about, for example, the Archons, the powers that are beyond this dimension, these hyperdimensional uh, negative controlling powers that have influence over our reality. Uh, and then if you go into other fields, like, for example, the astral projection field, you got Robert Monroe talking about Earth being an energy farm for non-human beings. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting concept. You know, the, the idea that humans, when they, well, especially when they suffer spiritually and psychologically and emotionally, they give off a, um, they give off an energy that in the book was called Lush, L-O-S-H. Um, but, you know, other people have given it other names. We call it orgone, chi, prana, astral energy. So these are all related. These are all subtle energy fields. And that's, I think, I think that's one of the, the pivotal keys to understanding so much of what's going on. Everything from psychic powers to how our consciousness can influence reality at the quantum level to um, even the concept of the demiurge ties into it. And we'll definitely get into that more. Um, yeah, so so the matrix control system, it's everything physical and hyperdimensional that aims to keep us spiritually asleep and blind to the bigger truth that is outside all of this. Well said, and something we should talk about too, which serves as a sort of a, a framework to hold your ideas, and that's the polar mythology. What is that, Tom? So polar mythology is this interesting signal that shows up in so many of the ancient myths, primarily, well, it shows up in Judaism and uh, uh, Christianity as well, but it shows up primarily in uh, proto-Indo-European, uh, Indo-European and Indo-Aryan, uh, and also Hindu mythology, because I mean, those are all related, they, they all come from a common civilization. But the idea is, uh, earlier when I mentioned the book Hamlet's Mill, it's the idea of the, these recurring symbols that show up in all these different myths that have to do with uh, different things. Uh, for example, it has to do with the idea of magical artifacts that can alter reality. Mm -hmm. It has to do with artifacts that are associated with uh, a vortex, a vortex, like a singularity point. Uh, 
from which from which things can manifest from outside this realm here into this realm. Uh, so it is kind of like a portal, like portal technology. It's that. Um, it's also the idea that our timeline as we know it, like history as we know it, wasn't the original history. That something happened that turned reality upside down and uh, from which we therefore fell from another timeline or a higher reality into the current reality that we know, which is what we call the matrix control system. Um, and also the idea of the demiurge uh, ties into it. So, so everything that I talk about in the book ultimately ties back into polar mythology. And so in chapter eight, I give examples of all the different um, symbols where they show up and uh, what they ultimately what they ultimately imply. But it's not necessary to know that. Um, however, it kind of ties everything together. Yeah, it's sort of a, uh... Yeah, as I mentioned, it's, you're able to hold all these civilizations and histories and mythologies, and you show the commonality with your framework of the polar mythology. So Joseph Campbell was pretty simple with his idea of the monomyth, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. And the monomyth gets into the inner spiritual journey right. um, that repeats over and over again, both on a macro scale and for us in our own lives on an individual scale. Um, but polar mythology, however, that is... That's kind of like, see, what I, what I call it in the book is I call it hyper-history. And the reason I call it hyper-history is because history is only what we remember, which is only what's in our records, uh, which is only a product of linear time. So once you start figuring in the concept of, let's say, time wars, let's say a time war between different uh, alternate probable futures that are competing over changing the past in their favor, all right? Once you get into that idea, then you start thinking about, okay, what if the past can be revised? Then, then, then how, do you, how do you chronicle the events that happen outside of history that, as we know it? Like what happens behind, behind the veil, behind uh, the, the backstage part of it all? And so that's what I call hyperhistory. And, um, and, because, and because history as we know it is uh, only accessible through the five senses and linear time, um, therefore everything hyperhistory has to come from something outside those limiting filters in our consciousness. And so just as our nightly dreams can, um, they, they can, they can give us messages that come from the subconscious realms, you know, the things that we're not aware of. Likewise, mythology on a collective scale can give us insights and messages from things that happen outside of collective reality, you know, beyond linear time, beyond linear history. And so that's what hyperhistory is. And that's why mythology is so important is because mythology can encode things that are no longer, uh, necessarily in our linear historical records. Love it. Love it. Well, I don't love knowing this reality, although it's the truth. Uh, sometimes it'd be easier just to go back to days of being a Roman Catholic and linear time and, you know, uh, cipher in the blue pill. But I think uh, this is important to know. But why don't we get into the main bad ombre? And that is the Demiurge. Uh, who is the Demiurge? So the Demiurge, uh, one of the, the, the actual term Demiurge, uh, it was one of the first times it was used was in Plato's book, uh, Timaeus, in, in 360 BC. And there, the Demiurge was simply the creator of this physical universe. Now, the catch is that, okay, we think, okay, the creator of the universe, obviously that's God, but not necessarily, not according to the Gnostics. According to the Gnostics, from from what they, well, well, okay, that's a side tangent, but some of the Gnostics experienced it directly, and other Gnostics merely learned it from teachers, okay, so... But anyway, what they believed is that the physical universe is a fallen, false reality, and that it was created by a fallen, false God. And that behind this reality, behind the veil, 
there is another hidden true reality and there is a true God, a true benevolent God. And so the, the whole aim back then of Gnosticism was to be enlightened to the nature of the false self and the false reality and to gain an inner objective uh, enlightened connection or understanding of the true reality and the true God. So um, how does the Demiurge figure into that? Well, so so the Demiurge idea is that the Demiurge is like the, they called it the, the craftsman, the artisan, the producer, the creator of physicality. And that implies um, it's, it's almost like a, like a video game when you have the central processing unit of your computer generating, the, the graphics card generating the computer environment. You know, that the graphics card didn't program the environment. It didn't come up with the idea. It's merely executing the idea of projecting the environment. And so the Demiurge has a similar concept in that it's, a, it's, a, it's not God, but it's more like a demigod. It's a sub-creator sub that uh, fashions and projects reality as we know it. Now, the interesting thing is that in Plato's book, um, the Demiurge was seen as a neutral or benevolent uh, creative or project projection agency of this of this reality. And there was nothing bad about it. It was just, uh, I mean, you wouldn't call your graphics card bad, right? If it's generating, <laughs> if, if it's generating. Some uh, days. <laughs> <laughs> some days, right, right, right. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, if it's projecting right. on, your, on your computer screen a uh, a horror game, you don't blame the graphics card. You blame the no, programmer. No, of course right? not. <laughs> right, right. So, so Plato, or actually, I mean, Timaeus in his book, he his perspective was that the demiurge was neutral or benevolent. It's there simply to execute the higher uh, archetypal blueprint that um, the higher intelligences, uh, some would call it the logos, came up with, and it would just you know create it, and here we are. Um, but the Gnostics saw the demiurge as evil, and the reason that they saw it as evil is because they saw all the evil in our world, the suffering, you know, the blindness and uh, people being uh, seduced by materiality into ignoring their higher inner spiritual uh, intuition. So they figured, okay, well, if the world is evil, then whoever created this world must also be evil. And um, during, during the belief system of that time, which was heavily influenced by Greek thought, especially from Plato, uh, the Demiurge was the creator of this world. So they thought the Demiurge was evil. So, you know, we, we got these interestingly these interesting opposite schools of thought, one saying that, that the Demiurge is benevolent and the other one saying that it is corrupt and evil. And so I, th I thought a lot about this. And once I started understanding what the Demiurge actually is, and, and it became clear to me that what we're talking about is a generic, general, universal type uh, Demiurge, and then a portion of it that became corrupted. So it's like a hard drive, you know, hard drive is fine, but a portion of it could have been taken over by malware. And so the operating system quarantines that malware part. And then we are like the trapped files on that part of the hard drive <laughs> in this quarantined reality. And so that's what I think this fallen reality is. I think it's a quarantined temporal space-time bubble uh, that is unfortunately ruled over by a some sort of a corrupted or demented artificial intelligence that the ancients called the demiurge but in modern in modern parlance uh, i think i think uh, artificial intelligence is uh, a better a better term for it yeah great analogies i think the the gnostic worldview fits today because science and our mythologies work better so it's clear and it's clear what they were trying to say and how real it is but uh, another way you describe the demiurge tom is you talk about uh this again entity this uh corrupt malware or 
uh, you you describe him as a thought form. Yes. So yes. he is the thought form created by the logos. Essentially, and essentially, and the way to understand that is, you have to you have to understand when you when you get into occultism, mysticism, theosophy, uh, anthroposophy, all those fields. Uh, a consistent term that keeps coming up is the astral and the and the etheric. And those are not modern terms. Those are actually, those trace back to Egyptian times when the Egyptians, uh, the way that they describe the non-physical part of the body, the soul essentially, is that it had a couple of primary parts, but one of them was called the Ba and the other one was called the Ka. And the Ka is the etheric body and the Ba is the astral body. Um, and so what the etheric is, the etheric is kind of like the, the, the green code in the matrix. So it's the, the matrix code that underlies reality. Uh, the energetic quantum scaffolding that projects and upholds physicality as we know it. So in, in quantum terms, uh, the etheric, it, it kind of ties into the the wave function, which is like this uh, nebulous cloud of probability, you know? Right. And, um, and so, so the etheric is, it's all around us. It, it's kind of like, um, well, like I said, it's like the code. And so when you have like, for example, code in a, on a website that projects what you see on, on a, in a browser, when the browser renders that code, uh, you're not seeing the code, of course. You're only, you're only seeing the, the final result. But there's all this code behind it, and there's also invisible code behind it that you never see, but it's important for the functioning of what's projected. And so likewise, the etheric plane, which we are immersed in, uh, that we're embedded in, uh, it has a lot of um, metadata in it that we don't see unless you are clairvoyant or unless you are out of body. And in those states, you see that there's a lot more going on. I mean, I've done, I've done out-of-body experiments myself. I don't. I don't recommend it to people because you know it's kind of kind of risky, especially especially yeah, if you've got yeah. if you've got negative entities after you. You don't want to be <laughs> yeah. astral, astral projecting, right? It's like a turtle right. leaving. It's like a turtle <laughs> leaving its shell. So um, it's interesting, and you can learn a lot from it, but it, it has its risks. But anyway, so yeah, so when you're out of body, you're you're not looking. I mean, obviously, you're not looking through your physical eyes. You're looking through your non-physical eyes, and in that state, you're bypassing all the filters that your brain normally puts on your consciousness that locks it into five sense reality. And so you can see things like ghosts, aliens, um, different types of uh, um, weird, um, I don't know, I'm going to call them <laughs> like, like these floating constructs that are, that are around us. Maybe and, your lost sock. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, lost sock and you know, like a, like yeah, a crumpled yeah. up dollar bill that <laughs> yeah, disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can see all these things in that state. And these floating, these weird uh, semi-living constructs in the ether, those are what the occultists would call thought forms. That's where the idea originally came from. And, you know, just other traditions, uh, the Tibetans would call them tulpas. Um, let's see, you got uh, other other occultists would call them, how you pronounce Egregores it? Egregores. Egregores, yes, absolutely. Egregores. And these are all the same concept, which is, it's a construct within the etheric plane, uh, partially in the astral too. So they're non-physical constructs that oftentimes have their own intelligence, but but they are not truly intelligent. They're more like artificially intelligent. So they're like these semi-autonomous, uh, non-physical constructs that have uh, they have a little bit of life force energy, a little bit of emotional energy and thought and intention put into them, and uh, they have their own will for a period of time until they run out of energy and dissipate back into the ether. So that's what a thought form is. It's a yeah, it's something drawn out of the ether and the uh, astral plane that you know has its own function. And so I realized, well, wait a minute, that 
that basically is what the human soul is. I'm not talking about the spirit. You know, the spirit is, is what I define as the core um, individualized consciousness that reincarnates. You know, it's, it's permanent. It's immortal. Um, but the soul is like the energetic interface between the spirit and the physical body. And the soul then, according to mysticism and occult lore, is made of at least two layers, the etheric layer and the astral layer. So we have the etheric body and we have the astral body. And that's what the ancient Egyptians were trying to depict with their ka and ba terms. Um, so the soul, technically speaking, is a kind of thought form that allows the spirit to operate the physical body. So it acts as an intermediate uh, inter interconnecting mechanism between the ultimate higher and the ultimate lower. Um, and so interestingly, uh, if, you, if you look up some books on modern day, uh, well, 1900s uh, Rosicrucianism, when they talk about the Demiurge, they call it the soul of the universe. Okay, they call it the soul of the universe. And, you know, the Latin term would be anima mundi, you know, the, the soul of the world. And the reason they call it that is because from what I can tell, the Demiurge is pretty much the, the universal thought form that plays its role to this physical universe, um, the same role that our own soul plays to our physical bodies. And so just as our soul operates the physical body and also guides its growth and its genetic expression, um, likewise, the Demiurge influences things probabilistically here. So, uh, you know, in, in quantum physics, they, they often talk about how this, uh, this wave function, this nebulous cloud of possibilities becomes a single tangible perceivable reality when you measure it or when you observe it. So they talk about the idea of consciousness collapsing the wave function. And so people have always kind of joked about it and they, they, they always ask it the, the, the funny question, well, when we're not looking at something, does it disappear? Right. You know? <laughs> the tree in the forest. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that, that's a pretty big philosophical question, but it has a technical answer. And the technical answer is that, well, consider, for example, when you're sleeping, you're not really conscious, you're not there, but your bed is still there, right? You're not like falling through the ground into, <laughs> into outer space. So, so there's always something there that is keeping most of reality in place. And, and it's not something that's our own consciousness, but it's something more universal, like a, like a, def, like a default setting on reality. And uh, actually back before I ever knew about the Demiurge, I already already was aware of this concept and I called it base level consciousness. So I called it base level consciousness because it's like the universal base, like the background, the background noise that keeps everything uh, for the most part, the way that it is. Um, and so I, th I think that is the fundamental function of the Demiurge, which is to keep reality stable, keep it together, keep us all in a shared uh, consensual consensus reality type environment you know to to for so that we can interact with each other and learn from our interactions which wouldn't be possible if we existed in a purely non-physical realm where you know any, anyone can do wh whatever <laughs> they wanted without consequence you know you can't like stub your toe you can't fall off a cliff there and die right there's no consequences there so um it's it's very similar to how games are uh, i'm talking even just about chess right chess what you're doing is you're taking infinite potential and you're restricting it to a very defined set of rules. You know, you only you only get this much game board space. You only get these rules and you get these pieces. And yet, based on that, you've got billions, if not trillions of combinations of different types of games you can play on it, like different moves you can make. And so uh, if you think about our physical universe being the game board and uh, all the little tiny uh, subatomic particles being the chess pieces, well, you've got a near infinite variety of different experiences and pathways that we can have here. And so... Our reality is very much constructed like a game, 
in the sense that there are rules here that restrict our infinite consciousness into a uh, very structured set of experiences. But, you know, uh, we have enough free will to make it a novel experience. Um, but the unfortunate part of it is that because we have free will and other beings have free will, well, other, other beings can also uh, choose to violate our free will. So there are negative forces here. And one thing I talk about in my book is how these negative forces, it was because they're conscious beings, because their free will um, is, because their free will extends into the non-physical spheres. In other words, just as I know, I can, I can move something physically with my hand, or I can use my intention to alter probability using the power of reality creation, you know, mind over matter. I can do that too. Uh, well, the unfortunate thing is these negative beings, whenever they employ their occult powers, their occult powers have to work through etheric and astral energies in order to accomplish that because that's the matrix code. That's how you alter physicality on, on, a, on a probabilistic quantum level. Um, but that's what the demiurge is made of. It's made of etheric and astral energies. And it is, in fact, almost nearly identical with the ambient etheric and astral field or planes that are around us that we're immersed in. And so when these negative beings use occult powers, they're essentially corrupting the demiurge because they're programming it to alter reality uh, towards their own negative predatory ends. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think um, Plato and Timaeus were wrong in that they were only looking at it from a philosophical, original, fundamental perspective, which is that the demiurge, you know, it just projects reality. And that's obviously good because we need reality. So the demiurge is benevolent. But the, I think the Gnostics had a more insightful and more historical perspective on it, which is that at some point, um, didn't even have to be within human evolution. It, it could have been billions of years ago on some other star system for all I know. But the Demiurge was corrupted through a combination of occult means and also technology that employed etheric and astral energies, which is what I call Demiurgic technology. And that's a whole subject in and of itself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wow, that is really well said, and I love it. And uh, yeah, furthermore, uh, when you talk about the world soul, it should be mentioned that the middle Platonists, who were considered uh, dour and dark, and this includes Celsus, uh, they thought that the world soul was evil. And even though all other Hellenistic and mystics would be against it, and then some say that the Gnostics either borrowed that or they lent it to the Middle Platonists in the first and second century. So it's interesting that connection with the Rosicrucians. And as you write too, and I'm just quoting this so the audience gets a, a clearer view, you write, uh, on a universal scale, News is the spirit of creation. Logos is the mind of creation. Demiurge is the soul of creation. Universe is the body of creation. So here we are, right? Stuck at the bottom. Yes. <laughs> Trapped in this faulty software. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And, and the, key, the key thing to realize about that is that um, what we just said is pertaining to the grander grander creation but as above so below so we have that we have that mirrored within our own selves we got the spirit at the top you know we got the mind or intellect or ego um and you know and we got we got the uh the soul and the body so 
we have within us a God spark that comes from outside this reality. And um, if we didn't have that, then there really wouldn't be any point to, let's say, Christianity or the redemption, the redemption of the soul from this fallen reality, because we'd just be products of this reality and there'd be nothing to, you couldn't retrieve something that was never from outside of it in the first place, right? So, yeah. Yeah, perfectly said. Well, Vance, what do you think as a modern Gnostic and also a uh, engineer? Do you have a question or what do you think of this? Oh, it all makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> it's kind of the way I think too. Right. Uh, what I'm I'm sitting here thinking is uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, I'll start with the big one: the nature of consciousness. I mean, I'm wondering in in, in your line of thinking, Tom. How do you think um, consciousness was injected or arose? How did consciousness get stuck into these you know false realities? Assuming there's even more than one. Yeah, and when we talk about false realities, uh, it's it's kind of relative because, you know, if if you have, it's kind of like Inception where you've got realities within realities, each one yeah. more deeper and more fallen than the one before it. Uh, no matter which reality you are at, uh, unless you're at the very ultimate one, you're always going to have things that are outside and above you and things that are below you. So, you know, you're kind of outside the ones that are below you, but you're still lower than the ones above you. Um, but yeah, I mean, even even the ancient Gnostics, they all of them pretty much agreed that at the very, very beginning, there was nothing but um, the ineffable, pure potentiality, you know, it, darkness, void. It wasn't even yeah. light yet. You know, it wasn't even consciousness yet. And so from that then came the monad, the, the one, uh, the, you, I mean, that's what we would call God, you know, the, the manifested creator. And, and from that uh, came other emanations or other projections, you know, some, some schools like the Valentinians believed in the eons. Well, actually, a lot of them believed in the eons. But the eons were, they're like archetypal intelligences. And I guess Christianity, the closest thing that they, they would have to it would be uh, the uh, um, uh, archangels. You know, that's how kind of they, that's how they personified it. But uh, from there, you've got other sub projections. But eventually, yes, eventually you get uh, some sort of an error, some sort of a fall. Um, so some of the Gnostics believe that uh, one of the eons, the youngest one, which uh, they gave the term so Sophia or Sophia, that one, she she tried to emulate the the creator in um, creating, but she did it without, she did it in an imbalanced manner, and it gave rise to a, well, some would call it an abortion. Some sort of a, a formless, a formless thing that wasn't quite fully creation, but that thing, that formless substance that was emitted, that ended up being um, the thing from which the the demiurge ultimately arose. Okay, now that is all symbolic, mythological, religious type thinking, and nowadays in more technical and occult terms, I think I think the idea is that you have this other reality, like like a true permanent eternal reality. And from it, some error came. Um, I don't know if it was, if it ties, well, it probably does tie into the Lucifer myth, the idea that you had one of these creative powers that wanted to emulate the ultimate power and maybe even grew jealous of it. Uh, but it had its own motives and it created something that should not have been created, which is ultimately uh, our reality. And it caused a fall of some part of that consciousness into that false reality. Now, See, here's the thing. It's it's perfectly possible that everything that we're experiencing right now, let's say, is merely a computer simulation in the year 4000. And we have no way of knowing right. that. We have no way of knowing that. 
and what the Gnostics call the eons and, you know, Sophia and the Demiurge, uh, that's actually, you know, that's, those are just the, the programmers. And some of them jack themselves into the game and their, their consciousness got replicated multiple times. And here we are, you know, we, we think we're billions of people, but maybe we're only, we're, maybe we're only 30 people with our consciousness split multiple times within the simulation. I mean, that's kind of like the brain in a vat argument, which is, you know, okay, it could be true. There's no way to falsify it, but there's no way to prove it either. So I'm just tossing out there the idea that when we speak about these absolutes, like, okay, there was an infinite ineffable thing and, you know, projected the eons and that projected. So, if, you, know, you know, that's just one way of, that's just one way of explaining it. It doesn't mean that that's the actual truth, but it points in the direction of the truth. I mean, the archetype behind it, the, the principle behind it, that's what's true. But the individual names and, and, you know, it happening in exactly that way is probably not how it actually happened. So it's, it's kind of difficult when you get into hyperhistory and mythology, um, trying to figure out objectively what's going on. And so what you end up with merely then is uh, you have to think more like a detective than a scientist because a scientist wants to have incontrovertible proof, you know, 100% certainty using replicable experiments, but you don't get that luxury when you're dealing with these particular subjects because science only deals with linear history and with the five senses and with, well, you know, what sort of mathematics we thought of, but it does not deal with hyperhistory, nonlinear time, um, you know, things that are beyond even the quantum domain. So, you know, the quantum physics is hard enough by itself to to calculate and predict and work with. So imagine things that are like multiple levels beyond that. I mean, it, it would give a it would give a scientist a stroke trying to <laughs> trying to trying to figure it all out. They want to simplify the universe into one simple easy to understand model, but that's not necessarily the way things are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when I say think like a detective, that means uh, using well, they call it abductive reasoning, which just means uh, educated guesses. But you, but you have to but you have to use um, well in logic. There's just hard logic, and then there's also called fuzzy logic. And fuzzy logic is it's more it's more organic. Like uh, you're you're able to do more with it. Actually, a lot of artificial intelligence is kind of like that. Like you know, I'm talking about like chat, you know, all these different um, AI, AI programs. They yeah. they don't they don't work by hard logical rules. Uh, they work by the the soft kind of flexible amorphous kind of things and that's how they're able to do what they do and so that's the kind of mentality that you have to have to 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 detect and decipher uh these different circumstantial data points yeah like neural networks for example is probably lying behind some of this stuff where things are combining and collab you know uh, competing and and so forth you know there's a um also something i wanted to ask you was the uh, the difference between Artificial and quote unquote natural intelligence. So we talk about artificial intelligence, but in a way, our intelligence in this reality is really constructed from our culture and so forth. And that's artificial in itself. Another level artificiality. Very true. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our our own ego. Okay, so so all right. So when you're born into a human body, you're I mean, when you when you come into it. Your consciousness is not at all yet tainted by, you know, so much of what is the ego and biological programming, things like that. And uh, only as you're a baby and you're restricted and you get grown up, uh, you get brought up by your parents, do you get programmed by all these different things? And then uh, the shadow builds up in the subconscious uh, and people become, you know, some people become horribly twisted and empty and burned out by the time they they get older. Um, So you ask a question, what is the difference between artificial intelligence and true intelligence? And so um, I think the best way to understand that is you have to think about the terms uh, deterministic versus non-deterministic. And deterministic means that the past is what creates the future, like cause and effect, chain of dominoes. 
A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. Um, so deterministic things, deterministic devices, um, I don't want to say beings because beings are ultimately non-deterministic, but anything that's deterministic is it doesn't have free will. It doesn't actually truly have free will because uh, all of its actions, all of its seeming choices are solely dictated by current and past circumstances. And so, you know, they're just input-output machines. So artificial intelligence, that's what that's what AI really is. Uh, it seems intelligent only because we're not fully aware of all the inputs that went into it, and we're not aware of all the calculations that it's doing to produce those results. So it's our own ignorance that makes us think it's truly intelligent, when it actually isn't. Because if you knew all the inputs and you knew all the calculations it's doing, you would know exactly what it would say next. And so it's it's 100% predictable, and that's what makes it deterministic. Now, anything that's alive and intelligent is not fully deterministic. There, there's always an element of unpredictability to it. And it goes all the way back and down into quantum physics. Because quantum physics, it deals with the fact that uh, subatomic particles, the way that they behave, uh, cannot be perfectly predicted. There's, it's, I mean, they, they've proven that it's 100% impossible to predict even what a single electron will do in a, in a given situation. Um, and the reason that is, is because even a single electron is influenced to some degree by the universal field of awareness, which, you know, is the demiurge. But um, there, there's some level of uh, life to it. And uh, so therefore, it doesn't uh, act in a predictable way. So I think I think it, uh, true intelligence, as opposed to artificial intelligence, is something that has enough life in it, enough spirit, that um, it can act in a unpredictable way because because uh, because it has free will. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to free will. Yeah, maybe it's the connection to that monad or the uh, the ultimate unknowable that makes the difference. Ultimately, yeah, 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 totally. It has to because the monad is well. Some call it the monad. I mean, you can call it God or the infinite creator, but it's all the same thing. But the the monad is the the true source of all free will. Actually, of all creation, of course. But all of its subcreations, they are, they are, they're, they're almost like thought forms that have been impregnated with its own, uh, with, the, with, the, with its own spark, you know, with God's spark, and that's what gives it that tiny bit of free will. Um, yeah, yeah, right. So when you think about like a, a character in a video game, most of that character is programmed. You know, the way it looks, its range of motion, you know, the, its powers, those are all programmed. Those are all deterministic. But it's the human being on the other end of the video game controller that puts a, a, a input into the game that was not programmed yet. And so yeah. likewise, you know, likewise, we've got a part of our consciousness, which is far outside of wherever we are right now, that has this non-deterministic power to create inputs here that were not programmed here by anything, not even by the Demiurge. And, you know, and it traces ultimately back up to the infinite creator. Very cool. Mm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So, Tom, and in essence, and I'm going to quote your book, and let me know if you want to add anything, to see this reality we need or can utilize employ gnosis. And as you write, uh, gnosis, it is enlightened knowledge given through inspiration and revelation from within and above. It conveys the ultimate truth of who we are, why we're here, where we are going, and what this is all about. Uh, it deals with the biggest question and mysteries of our existence. And then you write of Gnosis in a lowercase g is about achieving inner access to higher reality outside the matrix control system to catch glimpses of a transcendent objectivity that illuminates the mundane objectivity of facts in human history. So that's it, right? 
Yes, yes, yes. And whereas with the you help know, of the logos and Sophia and those uh those coders outside the system that are trying <laughs> to wake us up. Yes, yes. I mean, we saw that it's I mean, this theme is represented in so many different movies. I mean, you know, I mean, even even in, in Truman show, right? There was uh, I forgot her name, but but Truman had this uh, woman who really yeah, Sylvia, I think was her name. Yeah, might have been. Yeah, yeah. Well, she wanted to help him. She was on the outside. And she wanted to help him on the inside. And, uh, you know, ultimately, she does end up uh, helping him. So she in that movie represents the Sophia principle, of course. And then and then Christoph, the director who lives in the moon, funny enough, right. <laughs> uh, he, he he represents uh, the, the, the demiurge, you know, the corrupt demiurge, the, you know, which in the Matrix was represented by the architect, essentially. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely in a lot of movies. I mean, you've seen it in Westworld. I think in WandaVision, you see a lot of that, except she's the demiurge and they're trying mm-hmm. to wake up. So yeah, it's a very powerful theme in literature. And of course, that's what saviors do, right? Buddha, Zoroaster, so forth. They come to tap us on the shoulder and tell us, hey, dude, this ain't real. There's something better <laughs> outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vanilla Sky was another one where right. this guy came in yeah. as tech support, you know, literally called tech support, you know, and try to wake him up out of his nightmare reality. <laughs> you ever so, watch The 13th Floor? That's another oh, good yeah. one. <laughs> that is a good one. I mean, all these movies are worth watching for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The late 90s, is, something was going on. Sometimes I think it was trying to warn us about the ritual of 9-11. <laughs> or, or the ritual was done because too many people were waking up at the end of the millennium. Just speculating <laughs> here. <laughs> interesting interesting yeah well one thing i wanted to add though sure is that was that so whereas see whereas scientists whereas they i mean the thing that they worship is the five senses ultimately right i mean back in the 1800s they didn't believe anything at all that couldn't be perceived through the five senses in some way or measured so um so their god was materialism you know the material physical universe and that's what made them blind um whereas gnostics it's the other way around where they're using their inner senses to try to explore reality, to understand what's really going on. And so that's really, in my view, the only difference between a Gnostic and a scientist is that a Gnostic is going within and a scientist is uh, only looking outside of themselves. Um, but an equal level of rigor can be applied in both spheres. So, you know, so, so one of the, one of the um, criticisms leveled against Gnosticism back in the day for which many Gnostics were burned <laughs> is that is that is that they were inconsistent they're crazy you know yeah <laughs> that, that yeah. they all they all, they all contradicted each other yeah they were narcissists everything else <laughs> yeah and you know probably some of them were yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean the, the issue see the issue with inner exploration is that if you're not good enough then you're probably not going to be able to distinguish between pure subjectivity your ego your shadow uh, negative entities, you know, that are working through you, and the actual objective higher uh, reality that can only be in, uh, that can only be accessed through internal revelation, and so those two things um, gave gave rise to some Gnostic sects that were very good, very very on the ball, and others <laughs> who were completely the opposite, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and including including some that were pretty much outright satanic or Luciferian. Oh, no the, doubt, right? And in, in the sense that. Um, See, they're they're operating within the Christian paradigm, and so they believed. Well, I mean, they they they, they stuck to the the scripture, and so when when you look at Genesis, you know, the myth of Adam and Eve, they're like, okay, well, if if God in the Genesis was the demiurge and was evil, then obviously the serpent must have been good because the serpent is what tried to bring knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve, which you know they took, and then therefore they're cast out of the garden. 
Um, and so they worshipped uh, the, the serpent uh, Luciferian principle as the bringer of light, which you know ties into the whole Greek idea of Prometheus giving fire from the gods to the people illegally for which he was punished. Um, and so you, you have this, you have a lot of secret societies that came out of that line of thinking who were worshippers of Lucifer, of you know the, the serpent principle, of Prometheus, um, and they call themselves, in a sense, Gnostics too. But I, but I think I think that's a fallen or corrupted form of Gnosticism. So it's not representative of of what pure Gnosticism is, you know, or what it can be if it's taken towards its uh its ultimate um, positive potential. So I just want to clear that up because yeah, I mean, no doubt Gnosticism has a lot of critics and rightfully so. But um, but I think it's just like science where science has always been imperfect. You know, there's always been evolving competing theories, and you know, there's a lot of political interests that are corrupting things there too. But in the end, you know, science is very useful and you need it to, to for engineering and for getting stuff done and for civilization. Having so, this know, conversation. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a double-edged sword. You know, Gnosticism can get you to the highest heights, but it can also take you to the to the darkest depths. Yeah, as Jung said, everything casts a shadow. Christianity, Islam, capitalism, communism. There's a dark side. It's cosmic law. So mm-hmm. and as we are at the end of the interview. You uh, also offer consultations too on your website if somebody wants help with all these issues. I do. Like I've got three options there. I've got a free email option and I, and I put that out there for anyone who can't afford it, which is fine. Um, but the only catch is that uh, I might be too busy to respond right away. And in some cases it might get swamped and I can't respond at all. So that's what that option is. And then I've got a priority email option, which is like, yeah. So the priority email means, yeah, you're definitely going to get a response within 48 hours. I'll drop other things and I'll do that. And that's fine. And you know, the, the money will help me fund my research and, and so on. And then I've also got video consultations because some people don't want writing. They want like personal live interaction. And, 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 you know, that's cool too. You know, it takes me a while to schedule and prepare for because I do research beforehand to help you out and so on. So that, that costs a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, all those options, I, w- I want to have something for everyone. Um, and, and I specialize in so many different things like alien, like if you got alien problems, occult problems, some people, I've got a number of uh, like people with, uh, um, what do you call it? Targeted individual issues, mm-hmm. you know, like gang stalking and so on. I've helped a couple of those. Um, and you know, or others just want to like throw any question thing they can think of at me. I've got, I've got plenty of answers for you. <laughs> and all of this is found at montalk.net, right? This is uh, your hub. Yes. Yes. And I also want to mention, I've got so many free articles. I've got free videos on my YouTube channel. Uh, I've got two free books on my website, Discerning Alien Disinformation, which is all about the alien agenda. And I've got Fringe Knowledge for Beginners, which is like a perfect introductory text to everything spiritual and conspiratorial and alien. So those two are free PDFs on my website. I want to keep as much free as possible. And then, you know, have charged for a few things just to maintain credibility and to fund my research. So I try to keep a balance. Awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, I would, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you can get lost in some very... Very good gnosis just by uh, going down the rabbit hole of Tom's uh, Tom's uh, website. So, but awesome! This has been an incredible interview. Again, for the audience, I highly recommend you get gnosis and read all of Tom's stuff because uh, we just scratched the surface. But uh, such it is in the realm of Kronos. But first of all, Vance, thanks for keeping us uh, company in this uh, the Matrix control system. Oh, this has been great. You know, a kindred spirit. I really appreciate you, Tom, and I hear what you're saying, and uh, I know, I know. So 
I'm preaching to, to the choir. You bet. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tom, we really appreciate your time, uh, what you're doing, and uh, good luck with everything. And uh, we hope to have you on this show sooner rather than later. And we hope those damn archons don't change our timeline. Like, <laughs> yeah, did we thanks. ever interview Tom? What happened? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. It's been it's been great. Thank you. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamond. Tom giving us his own gospel of Thomas. Amazing content. In our second part, Tom will discuss the truth about the Ark of the Covenant. What exactly happened to this relic? Tom will share his insights on pyramids and the truth about Moses. We'll discuss what aliens are in the Matrix control system. And what are the origins of the Mecca Kaaba stone? Then Tom will explain about the Holy Grail and its many legends. You know we will cover the Archons, and what can you do to break away from the programming of the Demiurge? Right here, right now, as Jesus Jones sang, and much more. So please become a member for the full Red Pill Suppository. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord for AB Prime members and higher level Patreons. And keep in mind the Virtual Alexandria Academy, which has been a huge success and the feedback has been more positive than I could have ever imagined. Understand the Gnostic spirit with more than 20 easy-to-follow videos, downloadable assets, and cool quizzes. If you find value in any of this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations on Stripe or the U.S. Mail, even. There is also a link in the show notes if you want to leave a tip, or you can tip on any YouTube show. If you need help with uh, any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.